This episode is sponsored by the latest video editor, Filmora 10 by Wondershare. With tons of easy to use features to get the best look out of your videos, Filmora is a great option for experienced editors or people just starting out. From different effects to filters, transactions, transitions, and even having a ton of its own royalty-free music, you can avoid copyright and make your videos really quickly. For example, the new auto highlight feature, which will cut clips shorter for you, perfect for YouTube shorts and TikTok. And for those who have edited videos in the past, you always know that the pitch of music can be pretty out there, man. It could be really low, it could be really high, but Filmora's new audio normalization feature automatically corrects it for you. All of these features simplify your work and allows you to get videos out at a rapid pace. So guys, I definitely recommend to download Wondershare's Filmora 10, where the link will be in the description below. And you can try it out for free. But you have to keep in mind, the free trial will have a watermark. But we have a deal for you. If you comment what you think of the newest version of Filmora, the Filmora team will pick a lucky winner from each to give away a one-year free license. Also, they have a three-day hashtag FilmoraFest activity going on. Just click the second link for a chance to win big prizes, such as the MacBook Pro 13, and the chance to learn from the professionals. Just go to the description box below where you can try Filmora today. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA. This is going to be available on all platforms, Spotify, iTunes, all of that stuff. And if you want to catch any extra podcast episodes, just simply join the Patreon, or you can join as a member of the channel where you can catch extra podcasts episodes once or twice a week. I just had one up a couple days ago. There should be another one up in a few days from now. But let's get right into it, man. GSP is doing some work out there. He actually has revealed some of his payouts from the UFC. And with all the issues the UFC fighters are having today when it comes to the pay that they're getting, this is just making it look a lot worse, man. George St. Pierre said he started his UFC career not even making five figures a fight. And that includes one of his title fights against Matt Hughes, where he was getting paid $9,000 to show. But here's the thing, man. He said his peak pay when he was at the peak of his run, he was not making $400,000 like the disclosed pay was showing. He said he was making millions upon millions of dollars every single fight. He didn't necessarily say where that came from, whether it be the sponsors, whether it be the pay-per-view. I'm pretty sure the sponsors back then were paying a lot of money, but but it just goes to show you that the fighters today are not making anywhere near what GSP was making during his title run. And he specifically said that he made $10 million dollars fighting Michael Bisping when he came back. I honestly think 10 million is still below what he's worth because the pay-per-view buys were over 800,000, right? If you scale the pay structure to Conor McGregor who made 50 million to fight Habib, that means GSP, as the major star of the show, should have gotten paid at least 15 million. But there are some other factors involved, such as there are other champions on the card, there are other big stars on the card as well, some great fights, so perhaps they couldn't pay GSP what he was actually worth, and they chipped off from him and gave that to the other fighters just to equal out the percentage that they're giving the fighters. Whereas on Conor McGregor cards, notice that there are not a lot of big stars usually on those. It's Conor McGregor who's taking the majority of the money from the card. Whereas for GSP, when he fought Michael Bisping, there were three champions on the card and other big names. So that was very interesting. And when you talk about GSP making millions of dollars, and then you look at John Jones, for an example, who isn't even making $10 million a fight. Heck, let's not even look at him. Charles Oliveira, who was fighting for a title, didn't even make a million dollars. In the card, the 300,000 pay-per-view buys. There's some sources out there saying that Nate Diaz barely made over a million dollars in his last fight. And Israel Adesanya made like 1.3. I don't know if those numbers are true, but if that is true, that is terrible. Israel Adesanya should not be making less than $10 million a fight. If he's drawing like 600000 at least, there's no way he should be making less than like $10 million. Making $1.3 million is a robbery in broad daylight. But there's other bad news here. Max Holloway has gotten 
injured and his fight with Yair Rodriguez is going to be postponed. It looks like they're not going to find a replacement for Yair, but there is like Edson Barboza who threw his name in the hat, right? He'd be all up for a short-nosed fight with Yair Rodriguez. I hope they reconsider. I hope they do allow Edson Barboza to fight Yair because we don't know how long it's going to take for Max Holloway to come back. I couldn't find what injury it was, but the fact that they're looking to postpone the fight means that the injury wasn't that bad. Still, man, this one hurts. As much as we believe that Max is going to completely dust Yair Rodriguez, it's still such an enticing fight. It's still so good. We haven't seen Yair fight in a pretty long time, and we always love seeing Holloway in there. But... If you're an Islam Makhachev fan, you're possibly going to be able to see more of him as he might get moved up from co-main event to main event, five-rounder. I hope they keep the five-rounder if they move him up. And he does not have an easy opponent. Tiago Moises is a very dangerous fight for Makhachev. I'm really wondering how good his cardio is because if he's able to go five rounds while preparing for a three-round fight, that just seals the deal on his cardio. More questions will be answered if this move actually happens. But knowing the organization, you might see Misha Tate versus Miriam Renault get bumped up to the main event. I don't think people are as excited for that fight as Islam versus Moises. But with one fight falling off, we have a fight actually getting made here. On July 31st, we have Eskar Eskarov actually going up against Alex Perez. This makes me scratch my head a little bit because Eskarov should be the next guy in line for a title shot. He has already cemented his claim to that. The only thing that might be a little bit of a drawback and may have pushed the UFC to decide to give him another fight is the fact that he missed weight against Joseph Benavidez. I think a lot of people are forgetting about that. Eskar Eskarov weighed at 127 when he fought Benavidez, and that is not promising going into a title fight right afterwards. But he's the guy next in line. I don't think he needs this fight. He's made weight his entire career, besides the fight that was during COVID. This makes me think that they're probably looking at the trilogy with Moreno versus Fagan. I do not like that for Figueredo. I think Moreno's going to beat him even easier than last time. I think he's only getting better, while Davis and Figueredo is deteriorating himself fighting at 125 pounds. Figueroa needs to go up. Moreno might be a long-reigning champion in the 125-pound division, and Eskrov should be the next guy in line to test Moreno's reign. But with all that, let's get right to the questions here. We're going to start with the most liked. We're going to start with Ted Bradby. How far can Kevin Holland go with his improved wrestling and distance management? Obviously, he's going to go a lot farther, right? He's a long reach, he has power, but he's easily taken to the ground and he throws his long body into the shorter opponent's range. If he can put everything together perfectly, if he can start wrestling opponents and more importantly stuffing their takedowns when they get in close on him, also developing the footwork to keep his distance on the opponent the entire time, he will be a top 5 fighter, potentially a title challenger. Will that help a lot against Israel Adesanya? Not necessarily. But for the other opponents, it will, 100%. Even against a guy like Robert Whitaker, I don't think he would beat Whitaker, but it would definitely give Whitaker a tough time of getting in. And then we go to Caleb Schmidt. What is the greatest weakness or exploitable habit of every current UFC champion? I will say for Francis Ngannou, he tends to pull back with the left hook every time you throw something at him. So throwing a jab or fainting up high at him to trigger that pull can set up many, many things for a heavyweight against him. This is something that Surreal Gan is going to be able to do to him better than anybody else. Also, Stipe could do this as well. You just got to watch out for the left hook if you attack with further strikes. But going for a takedown after triggering that pull is one of the best things to do against him. Francis will bite on a lot of things you throw at him. But it just turns out that most heavyweights do not faint. They don't set up off a jab that well. And they always look for that one-shot knockout, even against Francis Ngannou. It doesn't matter who they're fighting. The most exploitable thing about Jan Blahovic, mixing up takedowns off of your punches, right? A jab to a double-leg takedown or a jab to a single-leg takedown is going to be one of the best ways to attack Jan Blahovic because Jan is always looking to counter or 
he gets into a defensive shell. The way he likes to defend is put up a high guard, sometimes lift his knee to check, and those are obvious holes for many different kinds of takedowns. We haven't seen a lot of people try to take him to the ground in his recent fights. But when we go back and watch his fight with uh, Alexander Gustafson, Gustafson was taking him down at will. Now Israel Adesanya, very similar to be honest. You have to mix up your wrestling. You got to wrestle more than you strike. Do not sit from far range like everybody's been trying to do. You have to defensively get in his face, crowd him, smother him, and attempt takedowns instead of trying to take his head off. Now his defense is actually really good, but you have to have a good drive with your takedowns. Marvin Vittori could have taken Adesanya to the ground, but he just didn't have the drive to do it. He had a good shot but a bad drive. A guy with a good drive such as maybe, actually there's like no one in the middleweight division that can do it right now. Even Derek Brunson doesn't have the best drive on his takedowns. If we had like a Yoel Romero who would attempt to wrestle a little bit more, that's the kind of drive that you need to take down Israel Adesanya. It's just that Yoel's shot selection isn't as great. And when you get Adesanya to the ground, you have to take the cage away from him. Do not attempt submissions. You have to go position before submission, just like Jan Blachowicz did. And it's very critical to take the cage away from him because Adesanya loves to kick away from the cage and also wall walk. Another thing about Israel Adesanya is he tends to drop his hands before and after he throws them, depending on his footwork and head movement as his primary defense. So he can be pretty susceptible to some counter punches, but you really have to get in close. But those entries from when he throws his punches, such as his straight right from orthodox, and he likes to really dig in his shoulder into it, his retraction is not going to be the greatest. And what you tend to see him do is shift backwards and that lengthens his stride to the cage. That is very important. So maybe someone like Robert Whitaker can see an opening after Adesanya throws some of his hands, most specifically a cross when he's an orthodox, slip and pressure to throw a counter shot. But your long-term game plan is only to get him close to the cage so you can shoot in for takedowns as well as box him in a little bit more where he tends to use even more head movement than before. The closer to the cage Adesanya is, the more vulnerable he is. This is what Anderson Silva actually showed more than most of Adesanya's opponents, ironically. So you cannot look at Adesanya and just think, oh, I'm going to counter his punches. Oh, I'm going to counter his singular attacks. No, you have to counter his entire sequence. When you look at Adesanya, you got to look at him like a whole package of moves, not by individual strikes. A mistake a lot of opponents make against Adesanya when they have him close to the cage, when they have him where they want him, is that they're trying to headhunt. It took them so much work to get him in this position after multiple attacks missing. After trying to hit his head and he's just dodging, he finally backpedals to the cage. And now all they're looking to do is desperately land their gloves on him. This is why his opponents have to be patient with him. Again, not standing outside and, and just taking pictures of him like your Romero did and Paulo Costa did. You gotta fight your fight. You gotta back him to the cage, but you gotta do it patiently. You cannot rush things. Honestly, this is like the second coming of Anderson Silva. What did Anderson used to do back in the day when he put his back to the cage? They try to snipe at him. They try to take his head off. They're trying to knock this guy out and he's just using his head movement. The only difference between Adesanya and Anderson Silva, of course, some of the more detail in their head movements and footwork, the method is kind of the same, but the style is a little bit different. Anderson was doing it more of a showboaty way, getting in your head. Adesanya's creating illusions in front of you. He's trying to actually find a way out of there, whereas Anderson Silva plays with your head and puts his back to the cage when he could have exited. That's something that Adesanya will not do. But all in all, the method's kind of the same here. You're seeing what Anderson did to the older fighters, now Adesanya is doing that to the newer fighters. But who was the fighter to not let Anderson's antics against the cage get to him? It was Chris Weidman. What did Chris Weidman do once he got Anderson to the cage and Anderson dropped his hands? He literally took one step forward, slowly, and put his head into Anderson's chest and clinched up with him. What a difference to while everybody else was trying to take Anderson's head off. Just simply walk forward and grab him. But this is just not something you see 
Adesanya's opponents do. When they have him close to the cage, they're trying to pick off his head when he's moving it rapidly. He does it to everybody. When he's close to the cage, the speed of his head movement and the usage of his footwork exponentiate, and his opponents do not take advantage of that. Yes, he can be hard to hit to the head, but... You don't have to go to the head. And also, you don't have to react to everything he's doing. Like I said before, you got to look at him like a whole package of moves, not individual strikes or movements. Let him move his head all around the place. All you got to do is you got to keep him boxed in. When he starts moving his head and then look for a intercepting shot, like what he did against Marvin Vittori when he went with a straight left, right uppercut to a right fade, you got to look at all of that as one singular move. And you counter after that fadeaway because, again, he's going to drop his hands. He's more exploitable to takedowns, to headshots, to body shots, and leg kicks. In the midst of every single strike, he's not as open as people think he is. Then we go to Kamaru Usman. So it's hard to say with Usman because he's a great wrestler, but I don't know how good stay on defenses. I think his BJJ can be a bit suspect. And his hands are still pretty exploitable. He doesn't check kicks. So leg kicks, parry counters, right? If he throws that jab or the right cross... Parry outside slip counter shots over the top are going to be very effective against Kamaru Usman. The only thing that can potentially get you is if he comes under it with the takedown, which he doesn't normally do. You're also going to need some dangerous Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu off your back. Something you don't normally see for opponents when they go up against Usman. And then uh, Charles Oliveira. Oliveira doesn't move his head that much. So a sniper who has good lateral movement. Decent linear movement is not as important as his lateral because of how long he is and how much he attacks on straight lines. Right. So when you move laterally, it's going to get you out of the way of some of Oliveira's most used attacks. Catching him over the guard and all sort of stuff like that. And just a punishing volume game. If you get his back to the cage... Punish him with volume and always anticipate the takedown because that's all he's going to have for you. As we saw with Michael Chandler, once he gets hurt, he's going to try to grab onto you. If you push him to the cage and he's in a mode of desperation, he's going to attempt to take you down. And that's all you're going to have to really worry about with his back to the cage. Then uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, he has one of the least weaknesses in my opinion out of all the champions but he tends to be the most vulnerable when he's taking multiple steps backwards right when he's retreating a little bit more than stepping out he tends to be more open to shots and you saw this with max holloway as well as chad mendez he's very defensively responsible though through most of the things that he does when it comes to checking kicks defending takedowns covering his bases when he comes in sometimes he'll lunge in a little bit recklessly it's not the most usual thing but he does it in every single fight you could potentially catch him with an uppercut like max holloway did simple back steps away from his jab and right cross which is something he loves to attack with he usually attacks in like twos or threes when he's moving forward he likes two strike combinations or three strike combinations and from there he likes to either exit or stick his flag into the ground and hold his position in front of you with those attacks come long strides and that's where you could potentially catch him as well. The opening to Alexander Volkanovsky are in very small increments, and that is why the way Max Holloway was able to catch him was extremely impressive. And then Aljamain Sterling. So Aljamain Sterling, he's not physically the strongest in the clinch. You can kind of bully him in there, but he will attempt to take your back at any given opportunity or pull you to the ground or attempt his takedown of his own. He's very sloppy with his striking. He has actually some of the most weaknesses out of all the champions right now. He's so much of a specialist when it comes to his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's obviously going to leave a lot of holes in his striking. He does not defend kicks that well. He's very subtle to pressure. His punches are all telegraphed. And if you're able to block a kick and enter behind it, he tends to panic just a little bit. But if you attempt to take him to the ground... You have to step away every single time. He's going to go for your leg. He's very good at wrapping you up, man. And then Brandon Moreno. So Moreno's jab is very effective, especially offensively, but he drops his hand almost every single time he throws it and just naturally keeps his hands low. And this is why in the first fight, Figueroa was able to connect with his right hand, even though Brandon Moreno was keeping his hands up. 
The other thing about Brandon Moreno is if you're able to land on him, he will tend to get into brawling mode. He will start trading with you, but his trading tends to be a lot more looping punches, throwing from the shoulder. A lot of times they look like arm punches, and if you just tighten up your own shots on the inside of those, you'll win almost every single exchange, and you saw that with Figueredo in the first fight. And then we talk about Amanda Nunes. I want to see someone throw kicks at her, especially light kicks. Because she does tend to keep a long bladed stance at times. And I wonder how many leg kicks will do her in. Right, That power is going to have to be diminished after several calf kicks. But fundamentally, she does make a lot of mistakes when it comes to her offense, right? When she throws the right hand, she throws it very heavy, and it carries the whole body forward, and she does not get her hand back in position. Open the counter shots all day. If you could just pull away or slip that big right hand, you should be good for initial counter punch before she attacks with her next shot. She throws the right hand, you slip and counter, you have to move away because the left is going to come out right afterward. So counter her in single shots, specifically off of her right hand. And then Valentina Shevchenko. Valentina likes to move away in straight lines a lot. She'll move off on tight angles backwards, but it's not a lot of lateral movement. So you can intercept her a lot easier than other fighters. And more importantly, you can trap her in a box. And that's what Amanda Nunes did in their second fight. But you're going to need some attributes in order to do that. Technically, Shevchenko does not make a lot of mistakes. Most of her holes can only be really exploited through an advantage in attributes. And then Rose Namajunas. This is something she's always had in her career, but she's getting better at it. If you crowd her and smother her and pressure her, she just falls off in the fight. Whether it be her gassing out, whether it be her making questionable brawling decisions, or you just simply take away her sniping ability, this is also going to be used with light kicks in order to do that effectively. You have to crowd her, throw a lot of light kicks, and she'll become a lot easier to handle. I wonder how opponents are going to be able to take her to the ground like Carla Esparza and hold positions, shutting down her scrambling submission game. So that is something to look forward in the future as well. And then we're going to Spectonimus. How does Leon stack up against Jorge Masvidal after his Nate Diaz performance? I think people are writing off Leon a little bit too much. He got caught by Nate Diaz. Stuff happens in a fight, man. He got complacent. He threw a big winging right hook. It was not the best punch to really throw. It was almost like an arm punch fully extended. He cannot throw that kind of stuff at Jorge Masvidal. That's never going to land. But it's the only reason why he got caught. Actually, the bigger criticism I had with Leon was him giving Nate Diaz too much respect. If he gives Jorge that much respect and moves away, gives Jorge a chance to control the fight, he's going to pay for that, man. Jorge's not that same kind of guy. He has way more dangerous aspects about him. For one, if he catches Leon like that, Leon will go out. Jorge is a lot more versatile than Nate Diaz, and he could attempt to take it to the ground. The thing better about Nate Diaz when Leon starts backing away is that Nate can smother him with his volume, right? That's not something that Jorge necessarily does. Jorge actually likes to keep the fight in the center of the octagon. That's the biggest thing I have against Leon Edwards going to a fight with Jorge, but to be honest here, Leon can beat Jorge, absolutely. He has all the skills and attributes to beat Jorge. It's just not going to be easy one way or the other. I think no matter what, that fight is going to be pretty competitive. They're both going to be in opposite stances. And what you see from Hora usually is he likes to throw that body kick. He's one of the best body kickers in the entire sport. Actually, I would say his kick to the body might actually be his best attack. But Leon has that straight left hand. He sometimes has a good right hook depending how he wants to throw it. And if Jorge gets in close, Leon is going to look to clinch up with him. The thing about Hori is, he's a lot better backstepping than Nate Diaz was. When Nate was going forward, Leon was able to clinch him up. But against Jorge, I don't think he takes Hori to the ground for one. Number two, Hori is extremely dangerous in the clinch with his elbows. Give him a slight opening and he's exploding on you. He's done this to almost every fighter in the welterweight division. And number three, Hori's a lot harder to clinch up when he's moving forward. Because that backstep at times when he throws his shots is going to be a bit tricky for Leon in the beginning of the fight. But I think Leon will start to get the hang of it and adapt later. He's going to start attacking a little bit longer but that can also give Jorge 
an opportunity to explode and blitz on him instead of backstepping this time. So if Leon sees that Jorge enters with a 1-2, enters with a jab or left hook, and he knows that Jorge has been continuously backstepping away when Leon looks to clinch him up, Leon's going to attempt to pull back away from the punch and then counter with a long left straight or right hook or even a kick. What happens if Jorge mixes it up? and blitzes him down, similar to how he did against, you know, Darren Till, Nate Diaz, where he's not necessarily creating space between you two, and he's now covering more space, he's gonna run Leon over, so I think it's competitive, 100%, I see the fight almost 50-50, in my opinion, I think people have been a little bit too hard on Leon, and just loving Nate Diaz, I mean, who doesn't love Nate Diaz at this point, it can be a bit blinding of Leon's actual skills, and what he did against Nate, and then with a Dr. Wolfgang, are you salty because Figgy lost? And that's why you're not doing it. What really happened on the rematch between Moreno and Figgy? No, um, I just ran out of time. I'm doing a bunch of different stuff. I can still do it if you guys want. I just don't know how many of you are uh, interested in this. Or if you guys want me to continue working on like the nightmare matchups and the podcast and stuff like that. Because that stuff takes a lot more time to get done, you know. I've been working on the podcast and the nightmare matchups for the past few days. And also the next Who Really Won video. But if you guys want me, I can make What Really Happened to uh, Moreno and Figgy if you guys want. And then with a Parzavel, how long do you see Moreno holding the 125 title? And how do you think he and Figgy would fit in the 135 pound landscape? Appreciate the videos. Thank you so much, man. So Moreno could potentially keep it for a very long time. The competitive fight he has is with Askar Askarov, who he competed with before. It was a very close fight, but I think Moreno won, even though it was a draw. If he beats Askar Askarov, there's guys like Bontarin, there's Brandon Royval, there's a bunch of fighters in the division that can give him a tough fight. But yeah, man, I honestly see with Moreno exponentially gaining better between fights he might get to a point where he looks unbeatable at 125 i don't ever see him really going up to 135 he's a bit small i mean he's five foot seven he's really like five foot six maybe five foot five he was almost same height as figgy but he is pretty skinny he doesn't have the kind of build to be competitive at 135 i could be wrong there it's just that that's how he physically looks at 125 so if he were to move up i think he would be a top 10 fighter for sure right he has the skills and the technique to absolutely get it done against some of the best fighters in the world i don't ever see him fighting for the belt though unless he gets a like an immediate shot or something but like building his way up 135 fighting the contenders i don't see him making that title shot figgy I actually don't see it as well. I see Figgy getting some really good wins, but also some bad losses, right? So like, let's say he knocks out Cody Garbrandt, which is a huge possibility. But he goes and fights Corey Sanhagen and ends up on the wrong hand of the highlight reel knockout. Or Piotr Jan like tears him apart technically. A simple way you can think of Figueredo up at 135 is like, what would a John Lineker at 135 look like if he had a dangerous Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu game? He was faster, he was longer... And he's a little bit more technical and much more athletic. He can get some nasty wins in there, 100%. But you're going to see him against some of the more technical fighters like a TJ Dillashaw, maybe a Piotrion or something like that, where they would most likely shut him down. Figgy's not going to be that competitive in those kind of stylistic fights. But here's the thing, man. He has the potential to beat anybody if his power follows him or magnifies. If he's more powerful at 135 than he was at 125, he could beat anybody in that division. If he lands that one time, I think with a Dewani Glace. It's a weird one, but the most boring fight in each division. Oh, man, I don't even know. Are you talking about, like, of all time or what can happen? So I'm going to go from the past, right? Heavyweight Derek Lewis versus uh, Francis Ngannou was horrendous. There was also Frank Mir versus uh, Mirko Krokop was pretty boring. I'm trying to think of light heavyweight. Oh, uh, Leona Magia versus Quentin Jackson. I don't know if it's the most, but it's the first one that came to my head. Middleweight had a lot of boring fights. I think he had the most boring fights out of every division. Anderson versus Telus Latis. Anderson versus Damian Maya. Israel Anasana versus Yuala Miro. Probably could take it. Nate Quarry versus Caleb Starnes. Was Colton Smith... No, Colton Smith was uh, welterweight. Most of Elias Theodoro's fights, especially his fight with Sam Elvey. There were a lot of them. 
at welterweight, it's hard not to say Tyron Woodley versus Damian Maya. Lightweight, I'd probably say Gray Maynard versus Clay Guida, where Clay Guida would just fought so differently. He was just running around the octagon away from Gray Maynard the whole time. And it wasn't even like technical. He was like just literally retreating the whole fight. I don't know why, but I can't think of a featherweight fight that's been like that boring. But I'll skip the bantamweight. I don't know why I cannot think of a featherweight fight. Bantamweight probably has to be Uriah Faber versus Hennem Barrow, the first one. Even though it wasn't like crazy boring compared to these other fights. But it was still one of the most boring that I can remember. Then we go to Bossy. Since you were saying that Figgy would move up a division, how does a hydrated powerful Figgy fare against the top 10 bantamweights? And then we'll go to the next question after that. So, top 10 bantamweights. I'm going to go through it really quickly. Against Marav Dvajvili, I think Marav wins. I think he's a lot better than people anticipate. And I think his fight with Marlon Moraes might show everybody how great he actually is. Dominic Cruz. I think he beats Cruz. I think he beats Pedro Munoz. I think he beats Frankie Edgar. I think he beats Marlon Moraes. Marlon Moraes is too chinny these days. I think he beats Cody Garbrandt. I think he loses the Aldo. Especially if it's three rounds. I think he loses the Font. I think he loses the Corey Sanhagen. Loses the Piotr Jan. And loses the Eljamain Sterling. I think Sterling could possibly get him down. Very similar to the way Brennan Moreno did. He's also bigger than Moreno is. He's very good to get the opponent's back. A couple underhooks, a couple trips, and Figueroa might be crashing into the mat harder than he did when he fought Brennan Moreno. So pretty much he would beat the majority of the lower end of the top 10. He loses to most of the top of them. He's successful. He'll be a top 10 fighter for sure. Potentially top 5 with the right matchups. And then your next question, I believe if UFC fighters got paid like boxers, then we'd see them fight once a year, and they would retire early. Do you agree, and could this harm the sport? Selfishly, I don't want this to happen as I want to see the best fights every few weeks, unless maybe contracted to fight two times a year, but deep down I admit, they deserve to get paid equally to boxers. Always grateful for the content, Weasel. Thank you so much for the question, man. Very interesting here. So yes, if they get paid more, you will see a lot of fighters, especially early on. They're not going to fight as often and they're going to retire a lot earlier. It's going to take a few years where fighters are used to this kind of pay and it's just not enough anymore. They'll get to a place where they're not complacent. If they get the money now, the current fighters, because of what they knew they were getting a, like a year ago, they're going to be a lot more complacent with the new pay. But later on where this pay is the norm, you're going to see fighters fight a a lot more similar to how they're fighting now so yes if you do it right now Volkanovski is not going to fight as much Charles Oliveira is not going to fight as much Adesanya might not fight as much all these guys are not going to fight nearly as much because why would they have to they're going to be a lot more comfortable with the pay but Yuri Prohaska 2.0 that comes 10 years from now that guy is not going to be complacent all those fighters in the future are not going to be complacent at all. They're actually going to want more money than what boxers are getting. So yeah, I absolutely see what you're saying, man, because it would happen. But it is better for the fighters, and it's a better future for the sport. With more pay, you also will get better fighters. Once parents know what their kids can make getting to MMA, or let's say a teenager understands what he can get paid getting to MMA, you're going to see a lot more athletic fighters in there. You're going to see a lot more athletes who would have went to football or basketball, some of the freakish of freaks, step into MMA instead. And then we go to the MMA wizard. When you consider guys like Tony Ferguson who made 155000 to fight Pettis while being the number one contender, and Rory McDonald making only 59000 a show versus Robbie Lawler in the title fight, should UFC fighters fight Jake Paul if they get offered the fight? Even if it means turning down a title fight because they will probably get the biggest paycheck of their life, personally I think they should since they're all prize fighters. Number one, for those who don't know, yeah, Rory McDonald only got paid $59,000 to show when he fought Robbie Lawler. That was one of the contributing factors to him leaving the UFC. But yeah, fighters, especially the ones that aren't making a crazy amount of money, they should take a Jake Paul fight if the UFC allows them. Now, in a perfect world, if the UFC lets them go into boxing and fight Jake Paul once, these fighters should absolutely take it. Why not? What's the drawback of fighting Jake Paul? Especially for fighters who would beat him. 
It's essentially like a sparring session that they're getting paid millions of dollars for. And even for the fighters that would potentially lose like a Ben Askren, maybe Tyron Woodley, it still makes a lot of sense to do. Most of the fighters are in the sport to make money. Yes, they love martial arts and that's just who they are. That's their lifestyle. But like GSP said, in order to continue this lifestyle, you got to make money out of it. You have to compete. When you compete, you want to make the most money possible. Jake Paul is one of the biggest money fights in combat sports. And he's giving a lot of MMA fighters opportunities here because he's not going to go up against a boxer of course not he's going to go up against mma fighters because he has a better chance and most mma fighters are more known than most boxers think about it for yourself would you fight jake paul for a million dollars even if you're going to get some backlash from certain hardcore fans of course you would everybody would and we don't even go through what professional fighters go through going through training camp getting injured getting your face busted up cosmetic damage cuts and all that sort of stuff and getting paid what you're getting in mma tony ferguson 155,000 to fight pettis tony ferguson at that point should not be getting paid less than one million dollars if it's a fair world so of course guys like tom woodley and ben Askren and other ufc fighters would be up to fight jake paul 100 percent if, he, if they were getting paid fairly what they should be getting paid in the UFC, they would never fight Jake Paul. They would never even think about fighting the guy. Why do you think Canelo doesn't care to fight Jake Paul? Because he's making tens of millions of dollars a fight. Why would he have to do that? You got UFC fighters who aren't even making half a million dollars when they should be making more than that. They're the guys that are getting treated unfairly and have to take that sort of fight in order to get the pay that they're looking for. The pay that they're looking for isn't in the sport that they do. And that's the saddest part of this. And then go to the done. When will my dad come back with the milk? By any chance, is your name Noah? Because I think your father's some like famous millionaire fighter's manager or something like that. No, I'm just kidding. That was too easy. Then go to Lalo J. As MMA continues to evolve, do you think the specialist fighter will be a thing of the past? Or will there always be room for fighters like Adesanya, Ryan Hall, Demi Maia, etc.? There'll always be room for them. But there will come a time. I don't know when, I don't know how much MMA is going to have to evolve, but there will come a time where being a specialist is not enough because jack of all trades, guys who are well-rounded, their striking is going to be as good as Adesanya's. Their jiu-jitsu is going to be as good as Ryan Hall and Damian Maya's, as well as having other skills. So if there is going to be a specialist in the future, that specialist is going to be absolutely insane, right? Just like MMA evolves, other combat sports are going to evolve. Boxing is going to evolve, kickboxing, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, all that stuff. So I think, yes, specialists will always be a thing in MMA. And then we'll go to XX Deluxe Power. Have you ever considered collaboration with MMA channels? Martial Mind, MMA On Point, to name a few. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, actually, I would love to. I actually really like Martial Mind. He's a cool guy. I've communicated with him in the past. I'd definitely be up for something with Martial Mind, MMA On Point. I have some ideas to collab with other channels. Maybe doing a bit of a, like a fight companion thing. I could do it with other MMA channels if they want to join me. We could do it live. We can read your guys' questions during it, uh, read your guys' comments, and just have a good time with it. And then with a Versace can opener. I saw someone come on Izzy's backward movement and his risky defense by the cage, saying that he backs himself up to the cage to avoid being shot on from the middle where he's less likely to get up from. Is this BS or does it have some merit? Potentially, because he's a lot better against the cage getting up from the bottom than he is at the center. But once he fights that guy that could take the cage away from him, all right, Vittori actually attempted at one time where he actually passed over to the other side where the cage is. More experienced grapplers are going to do something like that instead. So the cage is actually not going to help him defend takedowns better. In a sense, it usually helps the wrestler a lot more, especially these days, to get it to the ground. 
The only thing what Izzy's doing back up to the cage is, I guess he feels comfortable of prying off the hands and using the cage as a crutch, but more importantly, he's using it to stand back up. If Hamza Shemaev actually proves to be an amazing wrestler and grappler to the point where guys like Adesanya cannot stop his takedowns, and Adesanya moves his back to the cage, he's gonna lose because of that. If he comes up against a guy who fights like Habib and you put your back to the cage, you've only dug your own grave. It's just they're not wrestlers in this division right now that can take advantage of that yet. There's not a lot of wrestlers in this division. It's a division perfect for Adesanya's style. So theoretically, no, it's not great that he does that and he might actually be doing that for that reason. It's a possibility that Adesanya does this on purpose, but I don't think he's actually putting his back to the cage. I think he's actually getting pressured to the cage, knowing that he's a long counter-striker, so he's naturally going to move back, and he actually puts his back to the cage to use that rapid head movement, but the takedowns come instead. He might feel comfortable there, he might willingly defend takedowns against the cage, but I don't think he's purposely putting his back to the cage. And then what is Ziad likes cookies. Since losing decisively to Adesanya, how do you think Vittori does against top contenders? Whitaker, Costa, Kenanier, Brunson, Till, etc. I think Vittori is like a solid middleweight. I don't think he's extraordinary. I don't think he's like gifted. He potentially can be top three for the fact that he's more well-rounded than most of the fighters in this division. And he's very strong and tough, good chin, good cardio, all that stuff. But there's going to come a time in the near future where he's going to be weeded out before everybody else for the simple fact that he's just kind of like a jack-of-all-trades. The only time you see jack-of-all-trades at the top of divisions is when the division is full of either specialists or the division is kind of lacking in uprising prospects which is actually what's happening right now in the middleweight division it's kind of getting weeded out from Adesanya becoming the champion and Whitaker doing the champion's work as well do I think he beats Whitaker no Vittori loses the Whitaker does he beat Costa potentially I don't know how great Costa's takedown defense is but Costa is a far better striker than Vittori is he's more powerful he's actually better technically he's way better at cutting off the cage he's way better with his movements and Costa actually has good cardio for his style does he beat Kenanier yes he can beat Kenanier especially with the wrestling he does not want to deal with Kenanier on the feet though at all does he beat Brunson I actually think a fight with him and Brunson would be competitive but it will mostly be a striking match. Or Brunson takes down Vittori. I do not see Vittori taking down Brunson. Brunson's takedown defense is actually insane. But Brunson has that long left hand. He's very powerful. He's a lot more experienced. So I actually favor Brunson against Vittori. And then against Darren Till, no, he does not beat Darren Till at all. No way. I think Whitaker is the number two middleweight, and I think Till is the number three, regardless of what the rankings say. And then your next question, assuming Blahovich gets past Glover Tashira, how do you think a matchup against Prohaska goes? Personally, I think Jan can get it done, but Yuri poses an interesting style to go up against. And that's pretty much the main thing. I mean, that power, that weird style, he's kind of athletic, he's long, but Jan is going to take him to the ground. Yuri has not gone up against a wrestler or a guy who attempts takedowns in the UFC, but look at his fights before the UFC. He got taken down pretty easily in fights. That's the thing that worries me about him if his takedown defense hasn't gotten better. Jan will take him to the ground and dominate him, in my opinion. I think Prohaska will get a little bit frustrated with the tight defense of Blahovich. I think with a marvel. Edson Barboza is a serious contender at 145 now. Yeah, he is, man, and it's great to see. Who do you think he should fight next? And do you see him becoming a champion within the next one to two years? I personally think he should fight Cater. Even though I love Barboza at 145, and I never thought I'd ever say that. But I don't think he becomes a champion. Number one, time is not on his side. He's been fighting for a long time, and at 155, he's taking a lot of time away from himself. Fighting in a division that I guess he didn't really belong in. Or should I say he wasn't optimal at? And number two, some of those guys up there are going to be a little bit too hard for him. Max Holloway and Volkanovski are going to be very tough tasks for him, especially Max. 
He's one of the only fighters right now, I think, that can convincingly take the first couple rounds away from Holloway. And not a lot of fighters can do that. Maybe Zabit and a fighter here and there. But Edson Barroza is definitely one of those guys. He just gets drowned out as the fight plays out. Volkanovski can actually be a competitive fight. But I think the pressure and how much Barboza kind of falls off with that pressure will also be his undoing in that one. It wouldn't be as rapid. He would be more competitive throughout the fight with Volkanovski. But taking the early rounds away from Volkanovski is going to be harder for Barboza to do than against Max Holloway. Do you say him fight Cater? I think he beats Cater. Light kicks all day. He has a speed advantage with his hands. He's longer than Cater. He has power to hurt Cater. And especially coming off that beating to Max Holloway. I don't know how many shots Cater can take anymore, man. And Barboza hits way harder than Holloway. That's a very good fight for Edson, but a bad fight for Cater. It's actually so exciting knowing how great Barboza is competing at 145. Then what a Kevin Croffin. When is it too late to start combat sports? Or what are the best combat sports books? Too late to start combat sports, man. It's different for everybody. It depends how athletic you are. It depends if you had any martial arts training in the past. So it's different for every single person. That's why a guy like uh, Alan Joban can start in his mid to late 20s. And other fighters can't. He's just that athletic to do it. And he has that mindset. So too late is just a construct, man. It, it, it's hard to really know. If you feel good, if your mentality's right, if you have the passion for it, and especially if you have some martial arts training, I say even in your mid to late 20s, it's not too late to get in. I definitely probably say once you hit 30 years old, it's probably too late, regardless of how uh, competitive you are. Unless you want some fun fights, you're probably not going to get that far. And then with an okay dude. Top five strikers and grapplers in the UFC, and in what order? Is Oliveira the hardest matchup for Habib? So Adesanya, Wonderboy, Conor McGregor. I want to say Fiziev, but it's hard to really know right now, man. I really want to name him as one of the top five. Piotr Jan, I probably say, and Robert Whitaker. Top five grapplers: Charles Oliveira, Damian Maya, Kron Gracie, Ryan Hall, and Gilbert Burns. Now, when you say grapplers, are you also counting wrestling? Because sometimes people separate the two. If you're talking about all of it, I mean, you have to put Islam Makhachev in there. And then is Oliveira the hardest matchup for Habib at 155? I don't know, man. It's hard to say. Oliveira poses the most interesting problem for Habib currently in the UFC. And that is how dangerous he is off his back. He's very dangerous on his feet. He has the reach advantage. He's very composed under fire. He's not scared of Habib's takedowns. And that's one of the few guys that can say that. So he could be. Absolutely. But if Habib proves... That it doesn't matter how good you are off your back. He's just going to smash you. If Oliveira's BJJ gets smashed, then he will be one of the easiest fights for Habib. So I'm just going to say yes, Oliveira is the toughest matchup for Habib at 155. Then Barbosa versus Giga versus Yair for the best kicker. I'd probably say right now, it's Barbosa. Yair is a flashy kicker, but he hasn't shown the same efficiency as Giga or Barbosa yet. What I will say is Yair has the potential to be the best kicker in the UFC. If he focuses more on efficiency, like he kind of is right now, he will prove to be the best kicker in the UFC. But right now, I would say Edson Barboza, he throws everything in the book, man. He's just the best kicker. His speed is outrageous. His power is outrageous. His technique is flawless. He throws every kind of kick in the book. His leg kicks, his body kicks, his head kicks, his spinning kicks, he throws side kicks. He throws everything, man. If you want to focus on getting better at kicks, study Barboza, man. And then does one championship have any fighters that can give their UFC peers problems? Yes. Bibiano Fernandez is a monster. Angla Song is a monster as well. Then we go to Suhabi. Predictions for potential future fights. Nganu versus Gan. I actually go with Gan. That's probably the hardest fight for Nganu in the entire division right now. 
Blahovich versus Ankalaev or Yuri. I think he beats Yuri, but that Ankalaev fight is probably going to go to like a split decision. That's a difficult fight. That's so technically close. It's really hard for me to pick on that one. They're both counter punches for the most part. If Blahovich explodes and blitzes in and gets countered like he did against uh, Tiago Santos, he gets a little bit more impatient. He might lose the fight, but if he sticks to his game and fights to win, that's either guy's fight, man. Adesanya versus Whitaker, guy with Adesanya. Usman versus Covington, Usman. Usman versus Amazov, Usman. Usman versus Hamza Shemaev, Usman. Then uh, Ali versus Mahashev. This is the future fight that everybody's waiting for. This is the brewing fight that the fans are just salivating at. Oh man, that's a tough one. I'll go with Ali Vera, but man, that's a tough one. Volkanovski versus Evloev or Holloway. I think he beats Evloev. Evloev is a bit shaky on the feet. And Volk has really good takedown defense. Volkanovski versus Holloway. I'm going to side with Holloway. Piotr Jan versus Devashvili. I'm going to go with Piotr Jan, but those early rounds are going to be dicey. Piotr Jan versus Umar Nurmagomedov. I'm going to go with uh, Piotr Jan. I think he's the best fighter in that division. Moreno versus Eskarov. I'm going to go with Moreno. But that's a very close fight. I think with a Mohamed Abulsura, what can Whitaker do to win the rematch with Adesanya? There are a few things here. Number one, he cannot headhunt like he did in the first fight. He needs to set up the pace before blitzing in with full power. So patience, setting on the outside a little bit, gauging the fight, and he's going to have to use a lot of jabs, a lot of low kicks, a lot of feints, and wrestle when the opportunity presents itself. When you look back at that first fight, Whitaker's jab was getting very close to Adesanya, and that is a very good thing. The jab doesn't necessarily have to land on Izzy because it's only used to set up. If you're getting that close you could potentially land with other attacks Adesanya is very hard to hit in the center of the octagon so so far out of all of Adesanya's opponents Whitaker was actually one of the most successful fighters to back Adesanya to the cage from his leg kicks to his jabs to his feints to his blitz and that is where he ultimately needs Adesanya to stay on the cage it just Nobody is really able to keep him there successfully, and I really wonder if Whitaker's takedowns would be the game changer in the rematch. I wonder how strong his takedowns actually are against a guy like Adesanya who has good takedown defense. But Whitaker is not a kind of fighter who likes to keep the pressure. He engages and disengages every single exchange. But if he wants the most success, where he can use his wrestling and trap Adesanya and make him easier to hit, he needs to keep Adesanya on the cage. It was very easy for him to back him up, but he just didn't keep that position. Also with the jab, there comes those light kicks. And when I say light kicks, I mean the side kick to the knee. The side kick to the knee was extremely effective throughout that first round. The only time Whitaker almost got caught for it was when Izzy backstep shifted away in an attempt to counter him with a left high kick. After that sequence, you saw Whitaker stop going to the side kick to the knee. The jab is going to be used to mask in the side kick to the knee, as well as other leg kicks as well. Because Adesanya loves to move off on angles, depending which angle he moves out on, Whitaker is going to have the option of slamming a right leg kick or a lead leg kick, keeping his bladed stance in case for an exit or a continued blitz. Head threats to low kicks, it tends to work on Adesanya. This can not only be jabs and stuff like that, it can be feints. Because Izzy knows that Whitaker blitzes down at a blinding speed. So he has to give Whitaker that kind of respect from the outside. When Whitaker faints like he's going to come in on Izzy, there's going to be the opening to the light kicks almost every single time. Unless Adesanya stops respecting and anticipating a head strike, once that comes, Whitaker can play the game a little bit and change it up to actually come up high with that blitz and catch Adesanya, but it cannot be a primary weapon. Whitaker's blitz to the head trying to knock out Adesanya has to be used in brief moments throughout the whole five rounds. Also with the light kicks, there come takedowns with some of those lunging jabs can come a clinch as well. Try to wrap up Adesanya, get the double underhooks and trip him to the ground. Or Whitaker can just simply use the double underhooks to walk Adesanya into the cage 
and work the position from there. Another very important reason as to why Whitaker cannot blitz down the way he normally does against Adesanya is because Izzy is very good at lateral movement. He'll angle off very well. He sidesteps your attacks and that's what caused him to catch Whitaker at the end of the first round. He sidestepped Whitaker's blitz. When Whitaker blitzes down, he moves in a straight line almost only. The only time he changes directions is when he stutter steps. And that's what Whitaker is going to have to do because in that first fight, he did not stutter step at all, even though his stutter steps are some of the best in the game. He stutter steps with his feints, with his jabs, and that's something he's going to have to use in this fight. It sets up low kicks if Izzy wants to take off that angle, and it allows him to shoot an under for a takedown. Because what happens when Adesanya angles off on you and looks to counter? Go back and watch the ending sequence of the first round where he dropped Whitaker with the uppercut. And also, look at the finishing sequence of the second round. When he takes an angle on Whitaker's blitz, he naturally squares a stance perpendicular to Whitaker. If Whitaker is able to change directions because of a stutter step or feint and get Adesanya to sidestep like that, the parallel stance is a natural opening for a takedown. When he angles off like that, Israel is pretty much giving his hips to Whitaker. So simply, if Whitaker lunges in with a jab, stutter steps right afterward, sees Adesanya angle off, Whitaker can now shift, which is actually his wrestling stance. Usually when you wrestle, your dominant hand is forward, right? That's southpaw for Robert Whitaker. He has a natural shift into a double leg takedown on Adesanya. One of the biggest weaknesses Whitaker has are his exits from exchanges. You see him getting dropped multiple times because of this. Twice against Adesanya, against Romero. Winging his punches, dropping his hands, and being defensively irresponsible as he exits the exchange. And against Adesanya, who is a sniper and looking to counter, and he moves off on angles, it creates for one of the most difficult matchups for Whitaker in that aspect. But do you know what could possibly solve a lot of Whitaker's exiting issues? Is if he wrestles at the end of his blitz or end of his exchanges instead of looking to exit instead. If he simply just shoots in on takedowns after everything he does, especially against someone like Adesanya, it's going to be way better off for him. And then what a Patrick Bursick. Can Connor make adjustments needed to beat Dustin in the rematch? And does he really have a chance against Charles? Yes, absolutely. That Dustin fight is so 50-50. The light kicks and some of the shifting takedowns from Dustin are still going to be a bit problematic for Connor. But Connor McGregor needs to implement more movement, more footwork, and he can't be so close to Dustin. The furthest up he wants to be in front of Dustin is like end of his punching range. Even there, it's a bit dicey for him because of the leg kicks from Dustin. But the issue as to why Connor is forced to actually get in closer on Dustin, when we look at the rematch specifically, was that Dustin was pulling away from a lot of Connor's punches, specifically that left hand. When Dustin is constantly pulling away from Connor, he's naturally getting Connor closer, right? Connor has to get in closer in order to land his punches. So stop boxing. Stop throwing punches as a primary way of attacking Dustin Poirier. He has to kick more. If Connor comes back to his kicks, like in the first fight, he doesn't have to be that close to Dustin Poirier. Dustin has all the advantages, the closer the ranges. Not only because he has a shorter reach, but he has the wrestling threat, he has the leg kicks, he's better at brawling, and his counter shots are very much underrated. When you keep a long distance between you and Dustin, what does he do? When you're looking to counter instead of initiate every single exchange, like Connor was doing in the rematch, which is something he doesn't need to do. He needs to counter more than actually initiate exchanges. He needs to react more than he acts. Dustin Poirier goes for that shifting combination, and that's one of the biggest openings he can give Conor McGregor. Dustin is not great at long range. He's very vulnerable in his attacks, and especially if Conor focuses on counterpunching a lot more, his chances of winning this fight skyrocket. But he looked to blow Dustin Poirier out in the second fight. Hopefully he comes in a little bit different, more kicks, counterpunching, reacting more than acting, also pressuring with feints and jabs and side kicks to the knee and some spinning kicks to the body, it'll be a lot better off for Conor McGregor. In the lightweight division, his kicks are like a thing of the past. 
The last time we've seen him with a heavy use of leg kicks was against Nate Diaz in the rematch where he was exploiting the other Southpaw's vulnerabilities to leg kicks, which Dustin Poirier is going to have as well. Not as bad as Nate Diaz, but Dustin doesn't check kicks that well either. But when you look back to his featherweight career, that was like the last time you saw him use a plethora of different kind of kicks. Where he also had the bouncy footwork. He was throwing spinning kicks. He was throwing body kicks. And it's actually stuff that we've seen in Conor McGregor's uh, training videos. He's been throwing a lot of heavy kicks. Muay Thai style. And I wonder if that's something he's looking to enter into the Dustin fight with. Because here's the thing about Conor's kicks and why they were so effective. His kicks are so threatening because of how fast they are and powerful they are. And they come from different angles. It gets his opponent on the center line for his left hand. It's kind of like there's landmines on the left and right side of the opponent. They have to stay in the center. And from there, they're getting sniped at. But Dustin is a softball fighter as well. So the left hand is not going to be as easy for Connor than against some of his orthodox opponents. He's going to use the jab a lot more. And he's going to have to use that leg kick and some of his spinning kicks to the head and to the body. Dustin has shown to pull back from that left hand and counter with his own right hook. Right, The right hook of Dustin Poirier was a lot more effective than Connor's left hand. Because of course they are in the same stance. So the right jab and the right uppercut from Connor are going to be big weapons for him. But he's going to have to be more kick heavy than ever before. And I cannot emphasize that enough here. The movements and footwork are going to get himself away from some of Dustin's leg kicks. It's still going to be a problem for him as well as some of the shifting takedowns from Dustin. But as we saw in the rematch, Dustin could not hold Connor to the ground that well. Potentially as the rounds go on, the longer the fight goes, Dustin's takedowns are going to be more rewarding for him. But early in the fight, the takedowns are only going to be used as a way to counter some of Connor's attacks. Get Connor to respect the takedowns so they become more effective later in the fight. And then does he have a chance against Charles Oliveira? Yes, he does. The fact that Charles doesn't move his head and he tacks on straight lines, which is something that Conor does better than almost everybody. Charles is also orthodox fighter, so the left hand is going to be open for Conor McGregor. There's a huge possibility Conor could knock out Charles Oliveira. If anybody's going to knock out Charles, it's probably going to be Conor McGregor. Or maybe Justin Gaethje. But... The leg kicks, the front kicks, the takedowns from Charles are very difficult for Conor McGregor to handle, I think. And then with a cheese on everything. Prediction if Ferguson versus Nate Diaz was made. How would it make a difference at 155 or 170? Thanks, mate. This is a fight that would have been so good back in the day. But here's the issue with Tony Ferguson in 2021. If he is gun-shy in front of Nate Diaz and getting pushed back as easily as he was against Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush, Nate Diaz might drown him under punches. Even though they're both older, they're both probably not in the prime anymore, Ferguson has fallen off way more than Nate Diaz has. Nate is not gun-shy at all. He's still rather dangerous in some positions, whereas Ferguson seems to only be somewhat capable off his back these days. I hope Ferguson could bring that fire back in him and start throwing shots at his opponent because his performance against Benio Dariush was extremely disappointing, especially when you start thinking about his uh, future fights with Nate or Nick or Robbie Lawler or any older guy in the UFC. If he brings it back... If he is a threat on the feet and he starts being unorthodox and picking up the volume again, a fight with Nate Diaz would actually be extremely exciting. I think it's something the fans will love to watch as Ferguson's days as a title challenger are over. Fun fights, legend fights, that's what's up for Ferguson, I think, now. I honestly think a fight with Nate Diaz would be one of the better moves to go to. Does it make a difference at 155 or 170? I don't think the fight would be a 155. I think it would be a 170 for one. Ferguson should probably stop cutting that weight. And Nate seems to be a lot bigger these days. I think it will be difficult for Nate to go down 155. And that kind of work to get there is not going to be worth it. As Nate can get his big money fights at 170. Even fighting 155ers. So, a difference... 
I don't know, because uh, Ferguson, when we saw him at 170, he actually had legit knockout power. He was not a small 170-er either. I think he would be a little bit bigger than Nate Diaz when it comes to full size. He's like, what, an inch or two inches shorter? He has a longer reach than Nate by like half an inch. But he would probably outweigh Nate by like 10 pounds. If both guys compete to the best of their abilities... Ferguson not gun shy and Nate doing what he's doing right now. I think the grappling would be insane. I think we might break the record for most strikes thrown in a fight. Both guys are super durable even still today. Just full guts, chin, heart being displayed by both fighters. I love this kind of fight, man. Part of me hates it because the loser or or potentially both fighters will not come out of that fight the same as they entered. But it has the potential to be one of the best fights of all time. I do have Nate Diaz winning though. In their primes, I think Tony Ferguson destroys Nate Diaz. Then with a VJ, did it frustrate you seeing Nate not going for the finish against Leon? Honestly, live it didn't. I wasn't just enjoying the show, but when I watched it back, oh my, Nate could have gotten the finish there. There was like a good five seconds before he actually pounced on Leon. He was pointing and taunting and Leon was slowly recovering from the damage. Even during some of Nate's flurries, Leon was still kind of out of it. So you got to give credit to Leon for surviving even under the fire. But immediately after the left hand landed, if Nate pounced on him, we might have witnessed one of the biggest upsets in UFC history. Not only from the betting odds like before the fight, but I'm talking about four rounds down. Getting dominated in some positions. He's caught up. His leg is damaged. It looks like there's no hope for Nate Diaz because he's not known to have fight changing power. I need to see the odds of Nate Diaz winning by a fifth round TKO live on the betting gods because it had to have been like a plus 3,000 or something crazy, you know? If Nate secured his win, that would have been one of the most legendary finishes we've ever seen at MMA. It would be something that would be played for decades, man. Man, but showboating. That got in the way of a historic victory for Nate Diaz, man. The more you think about it, the more frustrating it is, man. And then what a proud Welshman. Any thoughts on Clarissa Shields' MMA debut fight and her future in MMA? Thanks for the great content as always. Oh, no problem, man. So Clarissa Shields, her hands were terrifying. Not only does she have incredible power, but the speed of her hands are blinding, man. No woman in MMA is that menacing with her hands and not even Amanda Nunes is. And I see some people knocking her for her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, not be able to get off her back that well, being flat on the mat and all the fundamental errors that she made. But people have to remember it's her MMA debut. It's her first fight in MMA after training for a couple years. How old is she? She's 26 years old, man. Yeah, she's gonna be a problem later down the road. She cannot go up against difficult competition right now. She needs to fight the lower end of women's MMA and build her confidence, build her skills. And once we get like 10 fights in, then she should fight someone with a bit of a name. As long as she develops good takedown defense, good ability to scramble off of her feet because she does seem very explosive, good leg kicks and body kicks, she has some thick legs and if she learns how to throw fundamental kicks correctly, she's gonna be doing more damage than on people's chins. And maybe one day attempting takedowns of her own. Look at Holly Holm for an example. Holly Holm was able to transition to MMA pretty well, especially when you talk about her wrestling and her kicks. Right, Holly Holm fought Ronda Rousey in her 10th professional fight. And not only did she box her up and kick her up, she took her to the ground, man. She took an Olympic judoka to the ground. And not only that, Holly Holm fought Raquel Pennington and Mary Renault before that fight. And Holly Holm entered MMA at a later stage of her life. Clarissa Shields is only... 26 years old. She's very athletic and very, very powerful. She's much more powerful than Holly Holm was. 
So Clarissa Shield's future in MMA is extremely bright. She's training at Jackson Wink, so that's a bit iffy. I wonder I wonder if John Jones can get to her, not with drugs, but with some of his techniques like kicks and takedowns. And maybe Holly Holm could teach her some things over there. I mean, she came from boxing, had a rather successful career, but they have to not teach her to throw like sidekicks to the knee right now. She needs to throw fundamental kicks before getting to the flashiness. Because fundamentals at this stage of her career is the most important thing. There's one issue though. She's pretty big, so she potentially might just stay at PFL. You know, the UFC doesn't have a 155-pound division. I don't think they ever will. So if she's ever going to fight someone like Amanda Nunes or Chris Cyborg, it's going to have to be like a open weight or super fight kind of thing where they possibly move up to her weight class or, or just allow them to fight at whatever weight they want. But I know the fight that's brewing up at the moment. They want to do Clarissa Shields versus Kayla Harrison down the road. It should not happen right now, but probably in a couple of years it can happen. And then with a skeef. How does Izzy do against the rest of the light heavyweight division besides Yan? He beats Jamal Hill, he beats Jimmy Crute, he beats Serkunov, he beats Paul Craig, he beats Ryan Spann, he beats Johnny Walker, he beats Krylov, he beats Uzdemir. Difficult fight with Uncle Ayev. This is a tough one for him because if Uncle Ayev starts wrestling, he would probably beat Adesanya. I go with Uncle Ayev. Izzy beats Smith, destroys Dominic Reyes, destroys Thiago Santos, he edges out Rakic, he beats Prohaska, and I don't know about the Glover Tashiro fight, man. If Glover takes him down, that fight is over. If I pick against Tashira, it's for the same reason as why I picked against him before. Against, you know, Thiago Santos and Anthony Smith. These guys are fast, they have good movement, they can get away from Glover. And just pick him apart from a distance into a eventual TKO or knockout. That's the same reason why I would pick Adesanya, but Tashira's proven me wrong about this game plan. He's not as chinny as I thought he was. And he's able to get his hands on his opponent a lot easier than I anticipated. So, I would say Tashira beats Adesanya. Then we go to Lil underscore Yas. Your mystic predictions. Colby versus Usman 2. Gotta go with Usman. Connor versus Dustin 3. I'll lean Connor McGregor. Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou. Gotta go with Ngannou. Big fan, brother. Thank you so much, man. Then we go to Chizu Kui. With Izzy racking up another win at middleweight, where does he stack up among the greatest middleweights of all time? How far is he to becoming the middleweight GOAT? Love your videos, man. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. So right now, he's my number two. He's my uh, second greatest of all time fighter. Whitaker, I believe, is number three. Now, if you want to bring PEDs into the equation and disqualify anybody who popped, then Adesanya is the greatest middleweight of all time. But if you want to count Anderson Silva, it's difficult to get there. I would say Adesanya in the middleweight division so far has beaten better competition, but the longevity is just not even close right now. Anderson has the longest win streak in the UFC. He has the second most title defenses at 10. Adesanya has three, which ties with uh, Chris Weidman. He has uh, five title wins, whereas Anderson had 11. And they both have really good performances, but I would say Anderson's performances, his knockouts and all that, are a bit better than some of Adesanya's. So he is a bit behind, maybe like two to three years. He could possibly surpass Anderson Silva, but right now, it's too soon to say so. He's number two in my book, and a little bit of distance between him and Anderson. And that's the end of the episode, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to thumbs up. If you're my make sure to subscribe. Again, if you guys want any extra podcast episodes, just join as a member or join my Patreon. You get the same episodes for both where I upload like once to twice a week. And I'm actually going to be breaking down one of the viewers' fights on Patreon. That's something I want to do from now on. If you guys have any fights you guys want me to break down personally or any sparring sessions or something like that, I'm actually very much looking forward to breaking that down for you guys. Just make sure to join Patreon or as a member in order to do that. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.